Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Car Chat Podcast, or welcome to for the first time. I'm Sam Morse, and with me today, I have David Dicker of Rodin Cars. Hello. Yeah, hi. Can you tell the audience a little, like a smaller bit about sort of who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'm the founder of Rodin Cars. We've been working on this project for a long time, but we've been working on it seriously for the last four or five years. High-end cars, track cars, road cars. And... How, this is probably quite a long story, but sort of before roading cars, how did you get to this point? Like, what did, what have you done before and during and how, where did it sort of... Yeah, well, building cars is expensive. That's the first problem. <laughs> so um, you need to make money and that takes a long time. I've got a computer business in Australia and New Zealand that I started in 1978. Um, it's now a public company. We had sales of $2 billion last year. It's got a market cap over $2 billion AU dollars. You know, I've made enough money out of that to be able to run this project. So, yeah. you know, it's expensive. You need a lot of equipment, and we like to try to do as much in-house as we can, and that requires um, machinery and it requires buildings. We're just making a new um, 27,500 square foot building, and it's cost just the buildings five or $6 million. Yeah, yeah. Not it including looks like, the millions of machinery that go into it. If, I, if I'm correct, you started off in Australia, and then what made you move over to, well, with Rodin anyway, to pick New Zealand? Yeah, well, I was born in Australia. But look, there's, the car culture in Australia is weak because of the government and the police. Basically, they don't want young kids to muck around with cars, and they make it really difficult. And it's just crap, really. And yeah. there are other logistic issues. I mean, Sydney was a pretty big town when I was a kid, but now it's just a massive sprawl. And if you're going to build cars, you need a test track. 
and yeah. you've got to get out of the metropolitan area to build a test track and you get so far out of Sydney before you can do that that the thing's just not viable from that standpoint either whereas in New Zealand there's still much more of a car culture here mm. much more interest in cars and racing and all that kind of stuff and the government and the police have got a different sort of attitude I'm not saying that they're not uh, heading in the same direction as Australia but they're nowhere near, nowhere near down the same road so it's a much better environment yeah yeah i've spent a, a little a very small amount of time in australia and a bit longer in new zealand um i spent two summers uh instructing skiing down in near sort of in wanaka um love look, yeah, amazing i used country. to live in the foothills of mount hut and ski every day oh, right yeah, I first came to New Zealand in 99, and I was a pretty keen skier. I used to race a bit, and um, yeah, did a lot of skiing there. So what? I never skied in Wanaka, though. Uh, it's a cool, it's a cool, um, it's, it's an amazing part of the world, and sort of, it's funny skiing in Europe versus, let's say, New Zealand, because it's all really tiny there, but it's all, like, mental terrain. Anyway. Yeah, but it's nowhere near. I've got a house in Italy and I used to be able to mm. ski out the front door. And, yeah, nice. you know, only a very small lift, but I'm old. But, you know, skiing in Europe is still on a whole different scale to skiing down here. Yeah, massively so. Sure. Massively so. So at what point in time did you start getting sort of interested in sports cars? Is forever or? And yeah, then... well, I started driving in 1970. I used to race small boats. Oh, right. And um, there's a lot of work in those, you know, because you build your own boat and you work on the boats and all this kind of stuff. And it's a massive amount of preparation. And, I mean, I enjoyed it. It was great. But hmm. with the car, you could you could just get in the car and go out for a bit of a spin. So it was <laughs> much more accessible to, you know, have fun. And then, of course, I had a kit car when I was about 19 or 20. And a lot of guys always wanted to build my own car. So, yeah. you know, and I've always been interested in cars and I've had a lot of cars, you know, and I just like cars, you know, they're fun. Yeah, they are a hundred percent. And then, so before, when did, when did you start, when did Rodin start? When did the, where did the idea come from? Or uh, Well, the idea comes from way back when, because, you know, you're interested in cars and you want to do something. You yeah. don't know how you're going to do it, but you, I went to the UK and, you know, I'm not even sure what year it was. My daughter was riding in the Commonwealth Games in Manchester. Oh, cool. She was a cyclist on the road and the track. I can't yeah. even remember what year that was. It was probably 2006. We bought this old project, which was basically a, um, a GT1 project that a guy had built in 99 that we thought we could use as the basis for the car. And it was a car Lola had built for a customer. And All right. We sort of shipped it down. We got body moulds and lots of spares and all that stuff, and we shipped it down to New Zealand and thought that, you know, we could use that as at least the basis for the car. But one of the problems you've got is that, you know, another two-seat supercar, like there's only about a million of them already on the market. <laughs> yeah. So you haven't got much of a marketing hook there. And, you know, I started to think about it, and that's when we sort of gravitated the idea of, building a single seat car that would be quicker than a formula one that was really the the you know the aim and the concept and i couldn't really fund it in those days i mean i had some money i wasn't destitute but i didn't have enough money to do it yeah. properly and the, the the real issue you've got is if you want to do these things properly 
you've got to be able to just spend whatever it takes. You know, like mm. it's no good saying, oh, well, we've got a budget of X, Y, Z, because what do you do when you get to the end of the budget? Do you stop? I mean, you <laughs> can't. So these sort of enterprises can't work like that. You've got to be in a position that no matter what you have to do, you'll be able to fund it and it won't be an issue. And it took me a long time to work into that position. I probably didn't really get into that position until, I don't know, 2014, 15, something like mm. that. These sort of projects are really expensive. I mean, we've got 15 guys working there. Yeah. Plus all the equipment and all the machinery and all the stuff and, you know, and there's, and there's even sort of ancillary things that people don't sort of think about is that um, you buy other cars so that you've got benchmarks. Like, you know, okay. we've got a GP2 car here, got Senna GTR, got a Janetta G57, we've got two or three F3s and then there's all the road cars because you need all that, you need all that stuff so that you can see what, the market itself is up to and how the other guys have done it and you know so you can measure against because otherwise if you develop in isolation well that's not going to work out too well yeah, yeah i yeah. even had an old formula one car at one stage how was that what 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 was that 89 leighton house the last car adrian knew he designed before he went to uh williams and it was it was a pretty good car really but you know, it was designed for Ivan Capelli, and he was 65 kilograms, and <laughs> yeah. I wasn't. So it was pretty hard to fit into. And, you know, it was fun to drive, but it was a bit it was a bit sort of limited. And, you know, the F1, especially in those days, the F1 cars are only designed for a race weekend, and then you rebuild it. And yeah. That sort of makes it hard to run. So we didn't do a lot of running on it, and eventually I sold it to a friend of mine. Yeah. During this time, the sort of like build up to now were you racing yourself as well or <clears throat> i raced a bit in australia in the late 90s in a mm. i had a mazda rx7 i also bought a formula holden that didn't go out, work too well and i did a little bit of sort of so-called classic racing here in like early 2000 with an old diablo svr that i'd bought oh sick um <laughs> but it wasn't i mean you know it was i mean it, it was club racing yeah I mean, it was fun and then in 2017, I started doing Ferrari Challenge. So I've done three three seasons in Ferrari Challenge, and I have a practice car here. And last year, I was going to do Europe and Asia in Challenge, but I couldn't because of this yeah, yeah. panic thing. Out of like, what what made you pick Ferrari Challenge versus the other other things you could? Well, the big advantage, like in Asia-Pacific, in Challenge, Ferrari themselves prepare the car. So you don't have to do any of the work on the car. They do it all. So all you've got to do is get to the round, and each car has its own mechanic, and then you share an engineer with two or three other guys. The last two years, I've also had a a coach, like a driver coach, who just works with me. If you're going to do it in the normal way, you've got to have all the infrastructure to do it and i'm in new zealand yeah so that's not really going to work you know and ferrari does a real good job on it as well so it's you know it's good and i mean ferrari's ferrari i mean ferrari's a great brand they got the strongest car brand in the world and the cars are really good and the whole thing's great really yeah absolutely i mean who wouldn't want to race a ferrari like <laughs> yeah exactly and they're they're good racing cars you know like the i've got a practice car here well i got a 458 and a 488 practice car and you know we've done thousands of laps here mm. without 
any real issue in the car. I mean, to be honest, the things are amazingly durable considering how hard you beat on them. That's, that's, yeah, that's impressive. At some point, so you, start, so you started off with the, was it a Lola? Is that, is that you're saying yeah. you started off with? Well, it was called the Cintura, but it was based on, I think, the old Lola 9810 or something. Mm. Group C card they'd built in the 90s. And then... Or group C type. At some point in time, you got in touch with Lotus, is that right? Oh, no. What happened was the Lotus guys contacted me about... <laughs> they had that T125 project and they wanted to, they wanted to get out of it. So... Yeah. We decided to take it up. Was that a, a useful? Was that useful for your development and processing? The car needed an, a, a lot more work on it than I'd anticipated, but right. it has given us the ability to build up our infrastructure and the staff and all the other stuff. It's been enormously beneficial from that standpoint. But it's it, it certainly needed a, a, a lot more work than I expected. I mean, I've got a few Lotus road cars. I've got three of them. And, you know, they're real good cars in the concept. The concept is terrific. You know, we've got 340R, Exige 260 Cup and yeah. a V6 Cup. You know, the concept is great and the cars are pretty good, but, you know, they only really, they're only sort of 90% finished, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's all <laughs> that will... sort of, you know, everyone knows about it. I'm not telling you any secret here. Yeah, and unfo- and they will never get finished now. They've all discontinued. You know, I mean, Lotus would probably say that they just didn't have the budget to do it the way that, you know, Porsche and the other guys do it, and that's probably true because that last little bit of development on all those kind of things is a massively huge amount of work. Although some of the things are not quite that straightforward either because in 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 the, um, say, the V6 Cup, which is the basis for their, their one-make racing car, yeah, there's not even a... Um, it's not even a, a sort of a decent rest for your left foot. And oh, yeah. <laughs> there's no support for your feet in the, in the footwell, and the footwell is aluminium. So, you you know, like, and they're things that could have easily, you know, I mean, we've fixed that stuff, but they could, things that could have easily been done that they just obviously didn't think was worth bothering with. It's weird how those quirky stuff like that happens and just never gets sorted. And like you said, that one pretty simple to sort yeah and you can't heal and toe the thing because the the difference in well i can't the difference in the weight of the throttle and the brake is so high that it's really really difficult to sort of judge it and other sort of i mean look i've even driven on lotus's test tracks i'm not saying they don't do any work on the cars but they just they need more development basically Mm. and that takes yeah time and money and like you said they didn't have money for a long time but the, yeah, it um, takes a lot of time and a lot of money and lots and lots of, you know, remaking things that seem to be okay and that will operate, but they if they don't operate quite the way you'd really want them to. Yeah, one of the things when I was sort of reading about Rodin is you seem to have placed a heavy emphasis on doing as much as possible in-house. One of the issues that we've got is that, you know, we're in New Zealand, so we don't yeah. really have an automotive contractor base. Like my ex-wife told me that I should do the project in the UK or Italy and she's probably was probably right, but it was too far away, you know, like I've still yeah. got this business in Australia. I mean, I'm it's a public company and I'm still the CEO and chairman and, you know, living in Italy or the UK almost all of the year didn't seem like the right strategy. Yeah. And besides that, the, the issue with contractors is 
contractors are good when you've got sort of volume, but at, at, at the development level, it's more difficult because you've got to make a lot of parts and reject them. Yeah. And it's hard to do that with with um, with contractors because they're busy. They want to be busy, and it just makes it take forever to do stuff. Whereas when you got your own equipment, and you want to make another X Y Z, well, you can probably get it done in the next couple of days, and that makes mm. a huge amount of difference. And we're particular about how things are and how they're done. It's not a matter of well, okay, it's all right. I mean, we try to build the best car we can, and that requires a fair bit of mucking around. How did you set like the the goal for the car? Did you start off with like I just want it to be? Did you set? Did you say like a certain pace, or you just like let's just start and go and make it as quick as possible? I wouldn't say there was any great plan there. I mean, I wanted to build a high end car, and originally I was going to build a, a car for the road, mm. um, but the road car situations become a little bit more difficult. And one of the other issues, of course, is there's an enormous amount of work to do for road compliance. Yeah. And you don't have to do that on the track. And the other problem is that a lot of guys, I always had the, the fantasy of wanting to have a racing car you could drive on the road. But after you, especially when you start to race, yeah, you know, you can't drive like that on the road, you know, because you just can't. And no. None of my road cars are much good on the track, for instance, you know, and I've had heaps <laughs> of good road cars like... I had a four-liter RS, you know, Porsche, and I've yeah. got Scuderia, Speciale, Pista, all these things, but none of them are all that good on the track if you drive them at the full quid because they're built for the road, and yeah. there's just such a huge um, difference. So we sort of gravitated to build to, to the idea of building a car for the track rather than for the road, and then you've got to think about the marketing aspects of of the thing how are you going to market it mm. and then that's when we thought about the idea of being able to build a car quicker than an f1 because the the way the rules are now the f1 guys are so heavily restricted that's not nearly as difficult a task as it probably appears to most people yeah i'm st- I'm not saying it's a lead pipe cinch it's not <laughs> but it's achievable you know like if the f1 cars were unrestricted you know or more or less unrestricted then you know, you wouldn't be in a position to even consider a thing like that. But they're so they're so heavily restricted that you know there's an opportunity there. Yeah, and presumably, you have to find a balance as well because your customers could be any sort of gentleman driver type person, maybe never raced a single seater or had much of experience in that. So designing the car so that presumably this has been some of the task, so that anyone ish you know joe who's driven some cars can drive it yeah but that's not actually as difficult as it seems like in the fz for instance you can drive that thing way below its full pace and still have fun and it's not it's not difficult you know there's none of this sort of you know you read these things like oh the aero doesn't work unless you're going (laughs) flat out and all this sort of stuff most of that sort of thing's just not true you know like the um you know so you can drive the car at nowhere near the full potential and still be going quick and yeah. still uh, and still have it enjoyable. And that's really what's good about it. It's not a case of if you're not driving it flat out, it's crap. And in some ways, it's better in that way than a GT car or, or the road cars are because they've got much lower limits and those limits are much easier to access for a regular driver. 
so you tend to push on, whereas in yeah. the open wheel car like this, to access the limits of the car requires real skill, you know. Yeah, so and I imagine you know. because of the power numbers and weight figures and stuff like that, you, it's just a different, it's just a completely different level of performance to anything you're going to driven. So it'll take you a long time to get up to that. Yeah, well, when you accelerate the FZ out of a corner in second gear, the acceleration's so vicious it hurts your chest. <laughs> and that's not just me. Other guys have said the same thing. Like it's violent, you know. Like and it's and it's a racing car, so you belt it. You know, it's not like like you know when you take a road car on the track, you sort of you're going to baby it a little bit because you don't want to abuse it because yeah. driving flat out on the track's very hard on the machinery. But this car is built for that sort of thing, so you just get straight on it, and yeah, it's it's really quick. Have you had? And you've got the massively hard braking and all the other stuff that goes with it, so it's just a whole different world, really. Yeah, I imagine it's it's pretty awesome. So, how have the cars evolved over time? So you've you've got two cars now, is that correct? Well, we got the FZ, which we grew out of the T125, and we've got our car, the F Zero, which is a um, a clean design from scratch. We're building our own engine. Um, it's got its own gearbox, which Ricardo are making, and custom for this car. And the whole car is built, you know, from the ground up with every single component designed to to go with it. There's no, except for some of the electronic gear and hydraulic bits and pieces, there's no, um, you know, off-the-shelf stuff in this car. Everything's custom mode. Yeah. Is that, does that car have a... What, like a shield over your head sort of thing. it's got a canopy yeah so you know it's 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 you, you sit inside it completely enclosed it's got air conditioning because you need it because it's going to get way too hot in there otherwise <laughs> but then the advantage of that is that it's not un, it's not going to be uncomfortable driving the car in the in the summer which can yeah. even even the the open wheel cars are pretty good in the hot weather because you get enough air even if it's hot air but yeah if if like in a GT car that's got, like I got a, we got a McLaren 570 GT4 here that we use with the customers <clears throat> and the air conditioning in it's so good that in the high, height of summer you can still have the cabinet like, you know, 20 degrees and nice. that does make a lot of difference to um, to the comfort level. Yeah, I remember I I drove a, what was it? It was a 997 Gen 2 GT3 RS at Porsche a while ago and uh, it was specced without aircon. And I just I drove it for a bit and they're like, yeah, it's a bit lighter. It's like, no one is going to be faster in this car over like an hour than... <laughs> yeah. Well, like, in Ferrari Challenge, obviously it's hot in Asia. Yeah. All the time at every round. It's, and um, the cars have air conditioning, but it's not air conditioning like the road cars have. You know, it's sort of... It's moderately effective, but it's not um, it's not great. You know, in Singapore, we use the water-cooled T-shirts. Yeah. And the last time I was in Singapore, we couldn't get the water-cooled T-shirt to work oh. on the start. And I couldn't get to the end of the race. I, a couple of laps from home, I just had to stop because I got to the stage where I couldn't... I couldn't push the accelerator all the way down to the floor anymore. I was just totally screwed from the heat because it's so hot there. Yeah. Even the cars struggle with the heat. So, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. How, how do those cool shirts work? Is it like, 
I've no idea how they work. Are they like well, little you got, water pipes you got, in a pump or something? You got plastic tubes sewn to the t-shirt, and you plug it into a pump thing. And what you normally do is there's water in the pump, and you put ice into the box okay. before you start the race. But of course, the ice melts about halfway yeah. through, so towards the end, it becomes a lot less effective. But it does help you a lot, you know, because um, you know it's really difficult um, if you get too hot, you just can't operate. Yeah, yeah. Do they do cooled helmets? I feel like I've seen them. Oh, uh, they do, but a few guys use those as well. But I've never found that to be a problem. And we mm. made a little fan thing. This is one of the advantages of having your own stuff. There's a little electric fan that we got clipped onto the side of the roll ca- uh, roll bar roll cage, yeah. and it blows air onto my face, and I can just adjust the angle. Yeah, and that's been an absolute winner. You know, I used it last year, and I think the year before, and it just makes so much difference because yeah, you know imagine. now you got the moving air, even though it's hot air, like mm. it's hot cabin air, but it's moving, whereas without it. You're just in that hot box. Yeah, and it's and, getting all that you know. sweat away. So well, with your engines, are they? do you have a place in the UK now? Um, we're, we've, got a, we've got a showroom in Donington, but the engine's actually being done by Neil Brown in the UK. We originally what, started with a guy that I used to know over there, and then we switched the project over to them about a year and a half ago. And what are they, what's the engine, or what are the engine's options? It's a 4-litre V10, but so it's a complete ground-up design. Again, there's no, there's no common parts or off-the-shelf parts around it. Everything in this engine is bespoke, and the thing is basically designed and built to basically a Formula 1 standard. So you've got a 4-litre V10. We're going to have turbo and non-turbo versions of it. And, you know, it's got latest technology, so you've got finger followers on the cams. And <clears throat> we'll probably work with Marl a bit further down the track to use the turbulent jet ignition on it. And, you know, it's basically a petrol engine that we're trying to squeeze the absolute most out of. And we hope to use it in the road car as long as the um, emissions don't prove too difficult. So, so there's going to be a road car? Yeah, we're going to build a, a road car. Because, um, well, I always wanted to build a road car. I mean, yeah. the um, we only really gravitated to the track because there's no regulatory issues. And yeah. from an engineering standpoint, it's an easier task because there's all, all sorts of stuff you don't have to be uh, concerned with. But, yeah, we've always wanted to build road cars. The only thing about it is it's a single-seat road car. My wife thinks that's a terrible idea, but <laughs> anyway, we'll see how it goes. Well, there aren't, like you said before, there, there aren't many single-seater road cars out there. So, you're, Well, the back mono years. guys have done all right with theirs, so I, I don't think it's an issue. Yeah. yeah. And will it like, look... I'm, ne- I, I'm not comfortable driving fast with a passenger in the car. And I think it's a bit, you know, like it's a bit, it's a bit off. Yeah. You've and I, wouldn't, got- I certainly wouldn't enjoy being the passenger and the <laughs> drivers getting right on it. I wouldn't enjoy that at all, so, you know. No, it's a sign of a good, I would say, a good driver when they tailor their speed to their passenger. Like, passengers getting uncomfortable, you've got to slow down. <laughs> yeah, well, I I hate passenger laps because they, they do them at challenge. Like, my coach is always real keen to do a passenger lap 
you know, yeah. the first couple of laps and that. And I, I just told him, look, besides the fact that I'm going to throw up after the passenger lap, I just don't enjoy him. I hate passenger laps. Yeah. I, I definitely, like, I used to do them quite a bit. I, I have a Radical. Yeah. Um, an SR3 um, with my coach. Used to do them a lot early days. And then now I'm just like, nah. Like, you, when there's two of us in the car, it's heavier. It doesn't feel right. I'd rather be driving. <laughs> yeah, it scares the shit out of me, to be honest. God, yeah. I was at a, I did the Ferrari Challenge course. Actually, I've done it three times. But in, in one of them, the guy just absolutely insisted. And at the end of the straight, you know, where you break, I just looked down at the floor. Because, like, I just, I mean, he's not breaking any later than I break. I mean, I I lapped the car just as quick as he did. But, yeah, I just did not enjoy that at all. Yeah. There's definitely that thing of being a passenger. And even if you know they're going to break, you're not the one pressing the brake pedal. So you're like, oh, 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 oh." Oh, it's awful. And you break so late. Like, our straight here is 900 metres long and we break at the 150 in the challenge car and we break at the hundred in the, in the open wheel car. <laughs> and you know, you're doing the challenge car does 272 before you break. So it's like, you know, yeah. and you cover that hundred, 150 meters real quick. Yeah. When you're going that fast, that breaking that bit later is mad. So how do you, so with these cars, how is it tricky to make them reliable? Is that like, what, what are people going to need to run them? What's the deal with that? Well, the FZ's built a little bit more robust than the old F1s used to be built. I mean, I haven't, I haven't had much to do with real current F1s, but yeah. the older cars were very, very lightly built because, you know, they're built down to a 605-kilogram weight with the driver, and it's yeah. very light. And so, you know, a lot of the parts are very, very flimsy. Like the, the Leighton House had fabricated steel uprights and you know they were fabricated out of about one mil sheet so you know they they're just not going to have a long lifespan because it's just you know they're so thin and things and and lots and lots of that kind of stuff if you just beef it up a little bit then it's much much more durable it's like with the gp2 like they'll run you can run a gp2 pretty much the whole season without any real issues um, right. because the cars are robust enough to do it and it only really requires a little bit not a great deal but you know there's a weight penalty but yeah if it's not relevant it doesn't really matter mm. and would you and with with your cars would you need to run them with a few people do you need to cycle oil around the engine before you start it and stuff like that yeah we preheat the we preheat the engine and in the f0 like we let, we have pump outs for the coolant and the oil. So after you run the car, you pump the coolant and the oil out, pump the fuel okay. out. Um, but none of this stuff is is um, difficult. Like yeah. we 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 run the car here basically with one guy, right? You know, okay. Um, and you can easily run it with one guy. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you need to do, but none of it's particularly tricky. And you know, there's no it's no great issue. It's just sort of there's a lot of details that you need to attend to but and there but like with any racing car i mean like it starts with you know the tire pressures you got to set the tire pressures cold we always preheat the tires here because um then you can go full speed in turn one and then preheat the engine you check a lot of stuff on these sort of cars because you don't want things to go wrong 
yeah. and just, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's detailed stuff, but none of it's difficult. You know, anyone yeah. who's had any experience with running cars on the track isn't going to have any issues with it. And what sort of time, like timeline would you get between rebuilds on engines and stuff like that, like 30 hours or something? We measure it in kilometres. I mean, the Cosworth okay. engines are probably going to last, I don't know, 5,000 k's. On our engine, we'd expect it to last 10,000 kilometres. It really depends on the on sort of the duty cycle and how you how hard it's driven and all this kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah. That last thousand RPM sort of probably halves the the life and doesn't make much difference to the performance. So there's a fair few variables, and the cars won't be driven as aggressively as they will with a professional. So yeah. And what are they? What are the engines revving to? Ish. The FZ runs to 10,000 RPM. Ooh. On our engine, the turbo engines will run to 9,000 and will run the normally aspirated to 10 or more than 10, probably 11 eventually. Wow. That must be quite something getting it. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. Although we put bufflers on the, like the original um, engines just had a very short collector stub, which actually it was loud, but it didn't actually sound that good. Yeah, and we've made sort of small 3D printed titanium mufflers, which just take the edge off it, and it actually sounds better. So, mm. yeah. Do you have? Do you run into issues with sound where you are, like people complaining that cars cars too loud or whatever? Well, we've only got it. We've only really got two neighbours within you know a couple of kilometres. Okay, the cars are not that loud. You know, the muffler takes sort of that real high edge off it, mm. and so. It's it's really um, within the the sort of the legal limit, even though it you know makes a decent note because the problem you're going to have is you can't sell the cars anywhere if they're too noisy. Yeah. So you've got to be mindful of being able to deal with that because you won't be able to run it. Yeah, like it's it's one of those issues that always comes up is like everyone likes their cars to sound you know be a certain volume or whatever, but to run them on a track pretty much anywhere in the world unless you've got a specifically unlimited day, you have to reach, you know, 105 or something, which is actually quite quiet. Yeah, and that's one of the issues. And look, I've been to heaps of Ferrari days where they had the old F1s, and to be honest, they're pretty noisy. They hurt your ears. Yeah. They're so loud. So I think I think it's a little bit disingenuous for people to cry their eyes out about how <laughs> they can't be as noisy as the old F1s because those things are pretty darn loud, you know. yeah. I do some. I go to some of the Peter Auto events. I don't know if you've come across them. Um, a bunch of old Le Mans cars, all racing, and um, they're all on straight pipes. And it's we. They now do up to sort of twenty fourteen, I think, back from when the stuff didn't have seatbelts up till then. And things like a four thirty GT two on straight, like so that fires up, and you you just like you're wearing headphones all the time like i i'm literally wearing earplugs all the time because it's it's just disgustingly loud yeah well that doesn't make a lot of sense you know and using the muffler on the car just just takes that edge off it i mean look it's still you can still hear the engine yeah but it's not you know like yeah as much as i don't like the whole situation where people can complain and whatever you got to live in the real world as well and you don't if you're just shooting yourself in the foot if you give them an opportunity. Yeah. Because, you know, there's always going to be some squeaky wheel. 
that wants to stop people from doing something just because they can. So you just play into their hands if you just go overboard on it. Being able to drive this sort of car, like your cars, has that completely ruined all other cars on track for you? Well, I've got other cars, you know, like, um, you know, i got the Senna GTR and this G57. And no, no, it hasn't because um, they're they're all different. And the big thing about driving on the track is that on the track, you can drive the car to the limit, um, yeah. and you know you can explore the sort of the full possibilities. And we like to sort of muck around with the setups on the cars here, just to try to, <laughs> just from an engineering standpoint, just to yeah. try to, like on the on the challenge car, like the like the first year I did challenge. I mean, it was a, it was a mission just to get to the end of the race physically because I'm old and they're thirty minute races and it was a yeah. killer. So. I never really bothered the engineer, but the second year I had a practice car here and I used to work with one of my guys and we did a lot of work on the setup and the challenge car, the 488 challenge has got a problem with understeer and, yeah. you know, we did all kinds. So anyway, we used to fax a sheet to, to Ferrari before every round with the setup because <laughs> we developed the setup here and like we got a 54 second lap and we, we improved the on setup there's about two seconds difference oh, wow just on on our track just on setup you know that made a huge difference so that kind of stuff is fun and it's helpful to to um allow you to work with it in the last year in 2019 i went with the engineer setup because he was a bit unhappy about the fact that he was you know and i was okay <laughs> with it so i worked with him on the setup at the round yeah. instead of um doing it here but you know that kind of stuff's enjoyable, and like even on the GTR, like the out of the the out of the box setup on the GTR isn't great. Where we have it now, it's pretty good. It could probably be slightly better improved, but it's overall not bad. It's you know really pretty good. But you know you want to like I've done seventeen hundred kilometers in my GTR. Nice. So, what's a, what's that you know, car let's drive? Uh, it's it's pretty good. It's got a slightly better balance in the chassis than the um, challenge car has, and the engine's a bit disappointing. But I think it's mainly the gearbox. It doesn't go any quicker, even though it's got eight hundred and fifteen or twenty-five yeah. horsepower and the and weighs twelve hundred kilograms, and the challenge car's got six hundred and sixty <laughs> and weighs fourteen hundred. It doesn't go any quicker on our straight than the challenge car because. It's. I think it's got the road gearbox in it, and the ratios are just too high. Right. And it just makes the engine lazy, and it just takes the edge right off the performance. You know, it's a quick car, but it, it's the weakest 800 horsepower I've ever felt in a car. Really, <laughs> like it's. That's it's, that's so you know. weird that like that is the case. And I guess can you adjust the ratios and stuff on that car, or not really? No, it's basically a road box. I think that. Like if I wanted to take the engine just onto the limiter, I could I could drive it on our straight in fifth gear. I mean, I normally pull to six just to save the engine, but yeah, that's how. And we've got a nine hundred meter straight, so okay, there's tracks where the straights are a bit longer, but not much longer. Yeah, and it's really not correctly geared. So um, Ferrari's building me a um, a GT car that's a in effect, a combination of the best things in the GT3 and GTE and with the engine unrestricted. 
Oh, sick. And it'll have a racing gearbox and it, the whole thing, and so hopefully it'll go a bit better in that regard. So. That I bet that'll be that'll be pretty cool. Yeah, it should be. I hope so. We should get it. I don't know. In a couple of months' time, they're working on it at the moment. Awesome. So, do you find most cars, let's say that type of car, whether it's like Senna GTR or a Challenge car and stuff, are they all set up quite like, yeah, sort of understeery, like quite f- sort of friendly in the sense that you know the front always pushes. I mean, look, you can understand it because the the level, the driving level of the customers. If the car's got a neutral balance, it's going to be problematic. But, like, you can't really... I have done it, but you can't really spin a 488 Challenge car because you can't get enough grip in the front tyres to get it to bite at the front, and so it'll spin. It'll always wash out. I understand it, but it'd be... I find it difficult because I don't like understeer because you can't carry the speed into the turns, you know, just really... And I've driven the 488 GT3, and... You know, it's much closer to a racing car than in that sense. Mm. But, yeah, yeah, I understand why they do it. And some guys like it, you know, like some guys can sort of, in fact, probably most people probably prefer it because it is very, um, it's very reassuring. Yeah. And it does make the car good to drive in the wet because we get a fair few wet races. And mm. it, in in a wet race... You know, it's very easy to just feel where the grip is in the front and just, you know, get along there. And so I understand why they do it, but, you know. Yeah, and then, like you said, you've got... There's that bit, that extra second, two seconds of having a car that's, like, fully, you know, will go. Well, it's like that video where Chris Harris took the the Senna... GTR road car to Silverstone and he had the 650 SGT3 and he lapped seven seconds a lap quicker in the GT3 even. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. No, he was down probably 200 horsepower. Yeah. And he was just <laughs> saying all the way through the video that there's so much understeer here, I can't do anything. And I know that that was a conscious effort in the setup of the car. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's how debilitating that kind of thing is for lap time. You know. Yeah, and, and tires and all that sort of stuff. It's well, yeah. I mean, look the the slick tires are um, even you know Trofeo R's and Sport Cup twos and that kind of stuff. They're much better than your regular road tire, but they're nowhere near as good as a slick tire. Not even close. No, I always I always find it an interesting 
situation when you look at people that might be doing i don't know might have bought something yeah like a senna or something like that and be using it on a track or these sort of like track day cars from manufacturers in comparison to an actual race car because like i know if i go to a track day with my radical it's only got 250 horsepower but i will lap faster than any supercar by quite a significant margin and so for me i get in a supercar again and i'm like this feels like a boat it's heavy it understeers it can only do about four laps and then it overheats so I, i it's interesting seeing people you know going for these different cars when you could go well you could just have the race car version yeah, well, look, purpose-built racing cars are, are an instrument. Like, we have F3s here, and I've got sort of my own F3. Mm. The F3s have got a few negatives, but, you know, it's a purpose-built racing car. So, you know, it's capable of... Although, the GTR laps many, many seconds quicker. Like, I can lap our track seven or eight seconds quicker in the GTR than I can in the F3. Well, that's interesting. What sort of power is a Formula 3 car? Well, mine's got basically a road engine, and it's a two-liter four, so it's probably got about two hundred horsepower. Oh, okay, and they and have no power at all. Um, not even sure four hundred and something or five hundred. That they're very light. Yeah, and they're they good in the power. turns, but I mean, there's no like the thing does two hundred and twenty on the straight. Yeah, the other cars <laughs> do like two seventy. You know, like I mean, it's. It's pathetic by comparison. It doesn't even feel like there's anything happening at all. You just nail the throttle and just pull the lever. But, of course, you know, they steer better and you can adjust the balance of them so easily to exactly where you want it to be and all this sort of stuff. And you can can go too far in any direction on the setup easily, whereas the other cars, it's always a bit of a struggle to really move it to in effect somewhere that's wrong because you just haven't got the options yeah it's quite that's that's really nice to be able to go too far um i've done it with with my car where we've gone like full stiff like lock it off all the way and drive it and you're like "Mm, okay that is a bit too stiff and you're like okay fine but i imagine like you said there'll be cars you might want to soften up the front more or whatever and you're just like no can't do it well i mean it'll work better in some turns than others and all this sort of stuff like the g57 has got a it's 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 behavior in the slow speed mechanical turns is quite different to the high speed turns like we've got a 130 meter radius turn here mm. and you go through the g57 goes through there at over 170k gtr goes through at 160 and the f3 goes through at 150 the g57 has quite a different feel in that turn than it does in the slower other slower speed turns which are sort of more like around 90k Did, uh, how much so how much faster is a f2 car than an f3 with quite a lot more power oh, you mean gp2 yeah oh, well gp2 has got 600 horsepower it's mm, quite a big difference like yeah gp2s are quick you know that like you know they've they're, they're fast they're on a whole they're totally different level to the to the f3 mm. Mm. well it sounds like you've got some cool stuff going on down there are you full-time in new zealand now are you living well unfortunately yeah. i'm stuck in new zealand i've been here for 11 months i flew back from the first round of challenge last year and i've been stuck here ever since because i'm not a new zealand citizen and if i leave i can't get back in oh yeah so it- uh, you know 
I um I was meant to be in New Zealand December January um on, on my honeymoon and we had a plan and I was actually going to try and see if we could we could do something because I think I'm coming quite near you or was going to be but stuck in yeah, stuck well, in the UK. You're welcome to come here anytime you can get here but I don't know when they're going to um, sort out that problem I hope it's soon because it's yeah. the best. Timeline wise with your cars can you say so can you buy an FZ right now? Yeah. How long would it take to be delivered? If someone ordered well, one, we, from we, one we, we, we've got a car on the way to the showroom in Donington. It'll be there in a week or two. Like, I mean, if some guy is breaking his neck to buy it, we can sell it to him. Yeah. Um, and we're building other cars here at the moment. Yeah. And so then the, the, the biggest impediment is the amount of time it takes to ship from New Zealand <laughs> to the UK. And do you plonk them on a boat or do you put them on a plane? Or does that depend? Uh, the, we have sent car, We did send a car to a customer on by on a, on the plane but it's not very good it's really better to ship it on the on the boat because you know you've got spare wheels and you've got equipment and you've got stuff to go with it and it's so expensive to air freight yeah and and unless you get a freighter like you can get the car on a passenger plane which is much cheaper than a freighter but it's still really expensive but if you're going to put it on a passenger plane you've got to take the front and rear wings off and it's really tight and difficult so yeah, you know, it's not something we'd recommend if you could avoid it because it's it's difficult and it's hard not to sort of damage the car a bit. Yeah, yeah. And if you um, so, and if you buy a car, does it come with a bunch of spares and extra body panels and stuff like that, or you well, get the we car don't. And you can we don't pr- supply it as is with extra wings and all that stuff. But you know, we have those things, so mm. there's really no point in buying it until you need it because we have them. Um, yeah, and you know suspension arms and all that kind of th- stuff. We carry all those kind of things, so we basically supply the basic car. We'd normally recommend a couple of sets of extra wheels, and then we supply equipment to you know preheat the engine and various the normal yeah. sort of pit gear that you need to operate it. But a lot of the guys who are going to buy this sort of car have already got a lot of stuff, or they work with someone who's already got a lot of stuff, so. Yeah. We'd really just work with the customer to supply. Like with the GTR, McLaren supplies everything you need to run the GTR, you know, like the big torque wrenches and oh, okay. yeah. tons and tons of stuff and the air guns and this and that and blah, blah, blah. But, like, we already had all that stuff, you know. Yeah. So if they if they bundled that into the price, we'd just be paying for stuff we already have. Yeah. And a lot of the customers will be in that, that position. Yeah, I imagine they... I, most of your customers or all of your customers run a bunch of other cars i imagine of a similar sort of yeah you're gonna look they're gonna work their way up to this type of car i mean look you could start in it i'm not saying you couldn't <laughs> but in 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 reality guys will have worked their way up from smaller cars because that's just the way things are you know yeah the um and then the f0 where is that in its design and production process well the engine and gearbox is just about done they've been you know ricardo's doing the engine Neil, yeah. uh, the gearbox neil brand's doing the engine we've got a huge amount of carbon stuff down here and most of the other bits and pieces so we should have the we should have the prototype of that running this year and you know we should be able to build cars next year without any real issue do you have like some numbers for sort of how fast do you think that's going to be 
Well, like I said, our aim is to make it quicker than a current F1. Our plan will be to take the car to Sepang. Right, yeah. Because Sepang's the nearest F1 track. We can ship up to Sepang in about 20 days. Um, and I've done... I'm not going to drive it in Sepang, but I've done tons of mileage in Sepang because we race there in Challenge. Yeah. And they normally have a test weekend there as well. So, um, And it, the track is right near, near the airport. The whole thing's very convenient. So... We'll ship the car up to Sepang and all we got to do is lap it under 90 seconds and the job's done. So, you know, we'll obviously run it here and we can benchmark it against the other cars and we can extrapolate, because GP2s used to run there, we can extrapolate what we think the lap times need to be here so we can get a pretty fair idea where, where we're going to be. And look, it's a turbo. So, you know, in a worst case scenario, <laughs> you just wind up the power of it. Mode. It's off the tyres, you know. And, you know, look, we have no limitations on the aero. So, you know, we can get 4,000 kilograms of downforce on this thing you know, if we I, need I, it. I have no idea what a, a modern F1 is sort of limited-ish or any numbers for a modern F1 car, really. I think it's hard to know because they don't. there's not a lot of data. Yeah. But I think the current cars are somewhere between around about 2,500, maybe pushing up towards three. Um, At what speed is that? Well, that's the other thing, because as you know, the, the downforce goes up as the square of the increase in the yeah. velocity. We use 300 kilometres an hour because, you know, we're on the metric system, but a lot of the older data was done at 200 mile an hour, which is 320. Okay, so And faster, even going yeah. from 320, to going to 320 from 300 does add quite a lot of stuff, so... I don't really know, but you'll notice that there's virtually no information in the public domain of, of what the F1 cars have got, so we're not really... No-one's really sure, you know, yeah. where, where they, they're at, but they're not at 4,000 kilograms, that's for sure. Yeah, because I always think when you hear... When I hear of manufacturers releasing their downforce figures for their car, whether it's like a McLaren P1 and they'll say it's got 600 kilos of downforce at 185 miles an hour, like, that's just not that much. <laughs> <laughs> you compare it yeah well to even the gtr's stuff. got a got a i think they claim a pretty high number for the downforce on it but i don't know it doesn't feel, i'm not uh it does have it does have grip in the high speed turn compared to it to a single seater it's not it's not the same no but then <clears throat> look i've never really experienced that whole sort of you can really feel the downforce working stuff on the track, you just drive the car up to the limit. My first experience of it really, f not necessarily feeling the downforce, but it kind of was, was um, at Silverstone, it's like Maggots Beckett's and in an Abbey and Farm, those two. They're all flat in an SR3, not, not super fast, but like, I don't know, 120 miles an hour, something like that. But that is 20 miles an hour faster than any road car. And you really get the, you start to feel the G-forces and you just feel like fully locked down. And that was the first time I think I feel experienced downforce. But I think before then I had it, this thing that everyone chats about that I don't know who spread it because it's just not true. That, oh yeah, you need to go a certain speed before the downforce starts working. It's like, well, that's just not how physics works. Like it, it gradually increases as you go faster. <laughs> You can certainly feel the force in the the side force in the turn, um, absolutely. But I mean, that's just yeah, like yeah. There's no sort of magical transition. <laughs> just, you just go quicker, and it's got more grip, and then eventually, 
it runs wide. You know, like I've run off the track here on pretty much every car I got because, you know, you just push in a little bit too yeah. quick. And, you know, it'll either just start to move in the back or it'll just run wide in the front and then you realise that, you know, you're not going to make it. And Like I had one in the GTR where I just pushed it right in. It just started to sort of drift wide and I could see that it was going to get near the edge. And if I'd have turned the wheel more to stay on the track, it would have spun. So I just drove onto the grass. But, you know, like, I mean, you just drive the car up to wherever the limit is and that's it. That's as fast as it'll, it'll basically go. There's no difference between pretty much any road car and any race car. They're all, they are, okay, not quite, but that in itself. And then add in super lightweight, five, six, 700 kilos, that sort of weight and downforce and slicks. And that's it. It's just, you're just gone. You just round the outside of everyone everywhere. The, yeah. I mean, in the, like I got a 488 GTB road car mm. and one thing that's actually good about it is you can take it onto the track and drive it at sort of about 80 or 90% and you can really feel how the weight transfer of that car basically works. Like you can brake into the turns, trailer brake in, you can tip the weight onto the nose, which makes the car turn well and all this sort of stuff. And, and it helps you like from a practice standpoint because it's so easy, it moves around so much. But when you get into the challenge car, the suspension in it's so tight that you don't get those feelings in the same way because the car's just nailed down so tight. It's still doing the same things, but it's much easier to pick up the signals in the road car than it is in the race car. Yeah, much smaller window. And then presumably in the single-seaters as well, that's another step, especially with all the high downforce. They're quite stiff and you just that, that, that window just gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And you can feel it, but like it gets tougher. Yeah, way it's much. They're much more difficult to drive. Vastly more difficult. Even the F3 is much more difficult to drive than a GT car. But the one thing that is good about them is that you can you can tune the the balance so easily, and then it allows you to just sort of pretty much attack the corner, and the car will do whatever it's going to do with that setup, and you can sort of adjust it, and that is a big help. Mm. These uh, cars, like the challenge cars and stuff like that, they have multi-stage traction control and things like that don't they and abs yeah but i never use the traction control in practice um never i don't even i wouldn't even use it at at practice in a round because you want you want to be able to understand what the car is doing i'll use it in a race because you'll probably be quicker if you have if you use traction control but i wouldn't i won't use it in practice Mm. and then do your cars have any traction control abs anything like that well, we're going to have ABS because we're going to use the Bosch ABS system. The cars without ABS require a really high skill level to brake them right. as efficiently as they can. Like, you know, you've really got to be a, you know, like you see even the F1 guys struggle with it a bit. Yeah. So for customer cars, the ABS makes a lot more sense because we have ABS on the on the Challenge car and the gt cars and it just makes the performance a lot more accessible okay you're not a driving god but you can actually enjoy yourself because it's not much fun locking up tires and you know because the slick tire you've only got to lock it up unless they're real hard compounds you've only got to lock it up once or twice and the tire's ruined yeah and if it's in the wet or whatever and you're locking stuff off you might be in a wall (laughs) and that's a big bill well that too the 
you can still you, you can still lock up the car in the wet with the even with the ABS mm. because um, if you aggressively attack a corner just real quick you can still have an issue with it but obviously it helps you a lot <clears throat> for these kind of cars the ABS is the only way to go yeah traction control um, you know we'd have that as well but it, it's not as important because um, if the car is reasonably well set up, you can feel it, you can feel that without any great issue, and it's not as hard to you know to deal with. Um, and let's say, yeah, with the amount of downforce numbers you're going to be looking at, you can can you give it a lot of throttle? At, at what sort of speed can you give it? Like full beans? It doesn't make any real difference because you just still drive the car on the limit. So when you go into a corner. You carry the speed in. If the car's on the limit and you apply the yeah. throttle, it'll spin just like it will in the F3. Like, you know, um, I got a nasty habit of always wanting to wind the throttle on a bit soon. Yeah. And I've had numerous spins in the F3 where I thought I was well and truly out of this corner and I can nail it, but <laughs> I wasn't. And, you know, it won't really make any difference in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds and like... like on the Challenge car, it's got a really aggressive diff. And if you nail the power, especially in slippery conditions, out of the turn, you can just spin it on the power. No, it sounds like you're making a, a very cool car. I would love to see one at some point. Hopefully, I'll make it down to New Zealand at some point, do this honeymoon that never happened, and uh, pop in and come and see you guys. Yeah, well, I came to New Zealand in 78 for my honeymoon. And I haven't really left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's nice here, you know. It is nice. a cool place. I really like it. Right, so I normally wrap these up with five questions. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Well, you can't beat a European road trip in a 12-cylinder Ferrari, and I've done heaps of those. Like, I've driven from my house in Italy to the UK non-stop in a GT3, 996 GT3 I used to have. I needed it to get serviced, and it's difficult because <laughs> I can't speak Italian, so I decided to drive it over to Paz in the UK to get it serviced we wanted to put a louder muffler on it because it wasn't that loud it yeah. was a fact you know it had to. so I drove over with my wife we hung around for a couple of days while they did it then we drove back we get back to the house in Italy and I said to her you know it sounded better with the other pipe because the par guys had three sort of levels of sound and I didn't yeah. want to go for the loudest one so I went for the the intermediate one and it just wasn't quite doing it for me so <laughs> A couple of days later, I got back in the car and drove it back over and got him to change it. <laughs> nice, nice. But driving in Europe is just absolutely fabulous, you know. Look, I don't drive that fast, but compared to the the, the police state we have to deal with in Australia and New Zealand, it's just absolutely fantastic, you know. Yeah. I, I, when I went to New Zealand, I couldn't believe, and I can understand why they sort of are, but the speed limit's everywhere. It's like Yeah, 50. it's like Australia. Everywhere yeah. you go, there's a sign. It's like Switzerland. Everywhere there's a sign and they're all really low and they have... Look, on the main highway here, they've got two or three coppers whose job is to just drive up and down the highway all day. That's all they do. Yeah. So <clears throat> you're basically under constant police surveillance when you're in the car and it's a very debilitating feeling. Like I once went to... Um, when I bought that SVR Diablo, I bought it from a mm. dealer in Germany... I flew to Frankfurt, I think it was, and I rented a car and I was at the Avis desk and then I saw this thing about you could rent a Porsche. Huh. 
nice. So I thought, well, why not? So I rented this 996 um, Carrera. It was black with a six-speed, black interior, so the exact combination I would have bought, I would have specified if I bought the car. And I remember when I drove down onto the on-ramp onto the Autobahn and realised that I could drive at whatever speed I liked, the <laughs> head just went up on the back of my neck. It was unbelievable because I'd never experienced that before because in Australia especially, yeah. you just constantly got your eyes pearl for coppers. Yeah. So it was just mind-blowing that you were able to just do whatever you thought was the right thing to do. I remember so, my first time know. on an autobahn um, going fast. It was in a, a Porsche. It was in a, I've got a 997 RS Gen 2. Um, and you get to that sign that's de-restricted. And in my head goes, yeah, okay, it's 70 miles an hour because that's what it is in the UK. And then you're like, no, no, there's no limit. And you're like, what? So you go to like 100 and you're like, no, no, they still can go. And you, it is the craziest feeling legally yeah, driving I know, but I mean, out. look, it's it, yeah, but look, the whole idea that you should be limited to some arbitrary speed when you take into account all the different cars, oh, yeah. all the different levels of skill, all the different levels of attention that most people get in a car, turn the radio on and switch off. It is ridiculous. The amount of times I'll be driving down the motorway and it's it's like horrific weather, like proper downpour, and I'll be driving, driving really quite slowly in the slow lane, I don't know, 60 or something, and the limit's 70, and someone will go past me at 100 in a Range Rover, like on their phone, and I imagine the traction control is just going like the whole time. Yeah, I know, it's just, they, they drive completely unaware and then they wonder why they get into an accident. Yeah, or and and the, you can get the thing is now you can get away with it for so long. Like traction control, uh, the number of times I've been, and it's actually stops me getting in. I used to get in cars with random owners quite a lot on road trips and stuff like that. And I started to realize I got in with a, a couple of people who hadn't got a clue, like properly hadn't got a clue, and they were in something really fast, and. You're sitting there and you can see the car is just trying to not kill you. It's trying to stop them killing you. They're just like every corner, just full beans. The car's like shaking around and you just realize that actually, no, there's like, this is not worth it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah, well, the run. thing is <clears throat> the cars are so much quicker now than they used to be when I started to drive, you know, like they just, that's probably the biggest change. Just the sheer level of performance. Yeah. Like, you know, I've got road cars with 800 horsepower. Yeah. And when I, when I first started driving, the quickest, the, high, the highest power you could buy in a car made in Australia was 300 horsepower. And, you know, people used to be aghast about, you know, how shocking it was and all the other stuff. And you get in one of those things. Like, I just bought an old 308 GT4 Ferrari. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, it's got 255 horsepower. It doesn't weigh much, carburetors, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And I mean... I've got the 458, 488, F8, all that other stuff. And, I mean, those things just obliterate it for power. Like, in, by comparison, it hasn't got any power at all. Yeah. Even though it's relatively quite quick. And in 75, <laughs> it was like, wow, this thing's fantastic. But, you know, like, Jesus, the Pista, Ferrari Pista, sheesh, that thing's just a rocket, you know? Yeah, it is. It's so mad how it's changed. And then you, and you're meant to be, you know, these cars are road cars. 
and you just can't you just can't use that performance to any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and that that's the real issue, and that's why we sort of oriented more and more to the track car because, okay, it's a pain in the neck to trail a car to the track, but at least you'll be able to enjoy it. And if anything goes wrong, you can trail at home. I mean, yeah. driving to doing track days in a road car that you drive there, I mean, you know, it's going to limit your enjoyment because you don't want to beat on the car too hard. And the cars are just not built for it. Like, I, start, I had a 968 CS Porsche, which I bought in the 90s, and it was actually not too bad on a track day. You could take it to the track. It had, you know, obviously very stiff suspension and it's got no engine power. Yeah. So it was actually okay on the track, but it was the lack of power that sort of really made it okay. But when you once you move up to sort of higher levels of power, the suspension just isn't there, you know, to go with it, and that's all there is to it, and it's just not going to do the job. Yeah. And it's not going to be satisfying because, you know, it just moves around too much. Mm-hmm. And you just and you, you know, either cook the brakes or whatever, and. Yeah, I know I can. Ha- I have so much more fun on a track day or a test day or whatever when, unfortunately, it is more expensive and stuff. But if I'm in a car that I know I can go in the gravel and it's not really a problem or at the end of the day, like you said, if something goes wrong, it gets trailered home and you drive home in your comfy road car and you're like, yeah, it's not a problem. If it's in the back of your mind the entire day, you can't push as hard. Well, look, it costs a megabuck fortune to replace the rotors on a Ferrari. Yeah. You know, the eight, I mean, and if you beat on it and the <coughs> the road car pads are a different setup to the race ones and the race car pads last no time at all. And, yeah, it's just, it's not going to be enjoyable, let's put it that way. Right. This, you, this might be a tricky one. Five-car garage, unlimited value. Jesus, I've already I've got a much bigger garage than that just in New Zealand. Just a lot of Ferraris will do it. A lot of Ferraris. What would be your okay, your top five Ferraris then? Well I do have a Monza. Um yeah. how's that? But the oh it's it's terrific, but it's not very usable because <laughs> of the wind the wind issue. So it's more of an ornament really. You can drive we're we're making a, a sort of a, a plastic thing that'll which we've prototyped here, which works well, okay. and will allow you to drive it on the road without a helmet. Mm. Because the problem you've got is when you drive it on the road with the helmet, okay, there's no issue with the wind, but now you can't hear the engine. Yeah. And that sort of defeats the purpose, whereas... So with this, we will be able to drive it with um, without a helmet and you'll be able to hear the engine. So so the mods is pretty, pretty terrific. But, I mean, look, I've got all the modern Ferrari... <laughs> Um, cars so any of those you know and and mclaren i mean i got in i've got in dubai i've got um 600 lt 675 lt 650s and i got a 765 lt coming to new zealand and you know all those cars are fabulous they're all fantastic cars so any of those cars would be um you know i've even i got two ferrari ffs i got one in Dubai and I bought a second hand one in New Zealand because I liked it so much and we put a tubey on it and the engine note on that thing is just absolutely sublime. So good. It's not too loud but it's got the full character of the 12 cylinder engine and like I did nearly 20,000 kilometers in Europe in my FF and the car's just perfect for that yeah. kind of thing. 
and our house is in the mountains, so we got a private driveway that gets snow on it. Nice. And the FF, with snow tyres, we could even get up the drive, you know, with it covered in snow. So yeah. the FF is a, like, in terms of utilitarian things and the whole entertainment value, again, it's a fantastic car. It's such, uh, it's, when they first came out, I, I wasn't a bit, sh- wasn't that sure. And then it massively started growing on me. And then, yeah, GTC4, Lusso as well. Like those two cars, I now look at and go like, that's just such an amazing four-seater, put a bit of luggage in, V12. Yeah, well, you put the rear seats down. I got a GTC4 in Italy in my house there, and you put the seats down in the back and you can get everything you need in there. Mm. And like when I'm in Europe with my wife, obviously she wants to travel with suitcases and all the other stuff, and we couldn't go anywhere in the in the other cars yeah. because, like, we used to trip around in the GT3, but you had to pack everything into small bags and just sort of try to yeah, yeah. fit them in, in, the, in behind the roll cage. And so yeah, yeah, any yeah. of the Ferraris or the McLarens <laughs> would be good, so I wouldn't feel bad, you know. The... Buying buying cars in New Zealand, are your, are, all, are your cars all registered to different places? Because I know Australia has crazy taxes and you can only have... Uh, well, I've got an old 355 I bought there in 95, 96, but I wouldn't... The taxes are not as bad now that they've stopped manufacturing in Australia, but they used to be... Like when I first moved to Dubai in 07 or 08, 09... If you spec'd a Porsche or a Ferrari in Dubai exactly the same as Australia, it'd be half the price Oof. they were in Australia, literally. Um, that differential's been pretty sharply closed. You know, they're still expensive, more expensive, and look, there's just too many coppers on the road in Australia. It's just unenjoyable. Yeah. And I'm just sort of like, well, I just don't want to do it. And large know, so. animals jumping out at you. <laughs> well, not in Sydney, but it's just... yeah. You know, in New Zealand, it's, you know, i got a pile of cars here because I live out in the country and mm. there's no traffic and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Dubai, I mean, you know, Dubai is fantastic for the for the cars because the weather's good, so you never have to yeah. worry about, you know, mud and snow and crap and all the other stuff. And all the roads are new. It's all, you know, so, and obviously in Europe, well, yeah, I mean. It's great. Yeah. Right. What do you think? I don't know. You can only drive one car for the rest of your life and you're allowed like a $500 banger on the side. I'd probably go for an eight-cylinder Ferrari. 458, 488 if I... I think if if it came down to it because they're unbelievably capable. I don't think a lot of people realise just how good Ferrari is these days and how much effort they put into the cars and how much passion goes into the whole thing with Ferrari. I mean, the, you know, they love what they do there and they love the cars and, and <clears throat> they really, they're on the case. You know what yeah. I mean? Like they just... Um, and they've done this thing. It's a I car found, company like no other. Like recently, they've managed to bridge the gap. Like let's say you get an F8 or something like that. Like that is a proper sort of like Jekyll and Hyde. You can drive it like oh, God, a normal yeah. car. Yeah. Just put it in sport and it's just like cruise around granny can drive it whatever but then you can dial it up to the other end and it's got 700 and whatever horsepower well i never drive mine in sport but the um look my day-to-day driver is either a ferrari or a mclaren Mm. and it's just no issue at all not even not even slightly and as you say if you want to get on it man you can whistle up 
mind-blowingly quick speeds <laughs> in absolutely no time. And as well as that, you know, like you push the thing into turns, everything's great, you know, like they're, they're brilliantly engineered cars. Yeah, I need, to, I need to spend some more time in some, some more Ferraris. Right, what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? You mean underappreciated or...? Yeah, well, it's sort of reflected in price, but you could you could take it as underappreciated. I don't know. The FF probably was, to be honest. Mm. Although a few of the journalists who drive it could understand it. I think it's almost a tricky car. No, not, I don't think so. Maybe for journalists to understand. Now, that's that's not necessarily a correct statement. I don't think because I think you've that car. You've got to look at it as like this is a car I'm going to drive a lot as a sort of daily useful-ish car. Whereas I think lots of journalists get in it and just treat it. I'm, I'm probably tarring them all with a bit of a brush here. That's not correct. But, you know, how does it dynamically handle as a one-off half an hour experience or something? Yeah, well, it's not a sports car in in the sense of the eight-cylinder cars, obviously. So you've got to look at it from a different perspective. But the thing is, we have mountain roads, you know, around the house in Italy. And obviously the eight-cylinder car, there's much better. And I used to have a... You know, I had the a GT3 there, mm. and obviously it was better than the FF. Look, it's the road. You don't, you're not driving that hard. No. And when you drive back from sort of northern Europe to get to our house, you got to drive over the mountains to get there. And in the winter, it'll often be snowing. In that situation, and you're in the eight-cylinder car, you're going to really be screwed. Whereas in the FF, if you've got winter tyres on it, you're going to make it. Yeah. Otherwise. You know, so just a sort of a different... And obviously, when I was younger, I would have been much more hardcore and just said, oh, well, <laughs> no, I'm just going to whatever. But you get a little bit more sensible. So it strikes that balance between the usability and the sports thing, ideally. And one of the things that's so good about it is the engine note is so good. It's just got such a sublime engine note. It's just absolutely fabulous. It does. I... Not too loud but the full character of the whole thing and, and the controls and the gearbox and all the other stuff, I mean, like, it's just such a good car. It's That engine is is so good. It's just such yeah, an amazing... Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's just, like, peak car sound, pretty much, without unless you look at some maybe some race cars of sorts, but it's just an unbelievable it's sound. Got, it's, it's, it's just an un, it's a tremendous note. And, it's, and it, they're gone. It's discontinued. We're not going to see any more... Ferraris like that, at least for now, we might see. I know they're doing this horrible SUV thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Final question: What's the most interesting car to you at the moment? What has piqued your interest in the car world? Well, obviously, it's the cars we're currently working on. Yeah. And I've got a couple of projects that I can't talk about, which are going to just, if we can get these to work the way they're going to be. It's just going to be absolutely sensational. So I'd really, you know, like that's the... That's Watch this the, space. Yeah. Oh, I bought yeah. a Yaris GR, though. Oh, how's the that? Other day. Have you, have you... It's pretty good. Have you messed with it at all yet? No, I've, I haven't had a lot of success with doing aftermarket stuff, although I did watch Harry's Garage yeah. on YouTube the other week, and he had one, and he had a modified one yeah and they were talking he was talking about how much better these um, aftermarket dampers were and i did drive mine the other day and where we are the roads are terrible yeah and so i might look into that side of it because 
it could be improved out of sight with a bit better, with a more sophisticated damping on it. Need something with a high speed blow off because, you know, it's a bit harsh on the sort of the bumpy crap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, your roads but are overall, very similar it's a real good roads. car. Yeah, well, they're worse than yours. Because, um, you know, I, we had an earthquake come through here four years ago and the whole ground has just been sort of, you know, um, uh, disturbed. Oh, right. And the okay. roads, the you know, tar's like a big bit of rubber. Mm. So it just sort of moved around with the movement of the of the, of the the earth and it's just, yeah. I imagine that's cosmic. Did that mess with your track? Yeah, there was, um, we had nearly 70 cracks from edge to edge, Oof. ranging from three millimetres wide to 450. <laughs> okay. It was an absolute nightmare. Um, and it did damage to the buildings and the whole thing. And it was on, oh. honestly, and I was here when it happened. I'd gone awful. to bed after watching an F1 race, and it struck about midnight. And honestly, it's one. Of, it was a really bad experience, and it's something I just don't even want to think about, to be honest. No, that sounds that sounds awful. With the um, funnily enough, with the, the suspension on the, the Yaris, um, I, I did a podcast on Thursday with Ian Litchfield, who is the owner of that company that has modified them. One of the things he definitely focuses on is making cars better on the road around here because a lot of sort of middle i would say middle range ish not super expensive sports cars are all just quite stiff stiffly sprung and that the, the, the damping they're not that well damped and you kind of i don't know I, d- I don't understand it in the slightest because it's well just... the real problem you've got is that if you want to drive the car quick on smooth roads whether it's on the road or the track the dampers need to be pretty firm because they got to control the movements. Otherwise, yeah. the thing's all over the place. But the problem you've got is when you take it onto bumpy roads, they aren't able to respond. So we're going to try a um, you know a damper that's got a high speed blow off because mm. then the idea will be that when you hit those bumps, it'll just blow uh, through. Okay. And I think it should smooth it out. Whether it'll work or not, I'm not sure. But that's that's our plan. Ah, worth a worth a go fun play with it yeah i imagine that car's quite i've got one coming to drive i think in two weeks so i'm waiting and then i'm gonna try yeah i mean it's a nice it's a once. nice car although you can't hear the engine until you're doing like six thousand rpm which is a bit <laughs> disappointing but i have got the sport muffler and a few of the other parts coming so maybe we'll be able to improve that yeah uh, it's, a, it's a cool thing i'm really glad they've made it and uh it just seems like a, a great little car to... Yeah, it's a fun car. I mean, I I like small cars that are you know like that because they they're good to drive. Yeah, yeah. And driving something smaller on a road is really nice. Like all these modern cars have just got so big that you don't. Have yeah, much I know. Lane well, I got this GT4. You put the GT4 up alongside the 458, 488 F8 thing, and it's like holy cow! Look at the difference in size. Yeah. You know, they're massive cars by comparison. Mm. Cool. Well. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting to talk to you. Yeah, no problem. And um, uh, hopefully at some point I'll be able to meet you in the flesh, maybe in New Zealand, maybe I'll come across you at some other part of the world. Who knows? Yeah, well, I'll be, I'll be flying out of here the very day they open <laughs> the border just so I can get out. Don't worry about that. Cool. Well, thanks very much. All right. Thanks a lot for that. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.